a recent article in the New York Times from this past week uh, talked about the actress Ashley Judd. Many of you might know her from, I think she was the wife in A Time to Kill. Anyone remembers that movie from a while ago? I really don't know anything else that she was in, actually, but I have seen the face. The face is pretty familiar. Anyways, the, the article had not only just a familiar face, but a familiar uh, topic. The article was entitled, Ashley Judd Reflects on a Year of Grief. Talked about how Miss Judd had navigated a tough time in her life, punctuated by finding her mother, who's a famous country singer, uh, Naomi Judd, in her bedroom, uh, dead from self-inflicted wounds. Judd said when she went to go check in on her mother and found her mother dying from suicide, it was the most shattering day of her life. A day that set off events for the rest of the year that Judd said was the most difficult, the most devastating, the most grief-filled year of her life. One day changed the course of her entire year the course of her entire life. Reminds us something of what we've been seeing so far in our one week thus far journey through the book of Job. How the events of one day can affect your life drastically. How grief can so fill your mind that is the only lens through which you look through life. A reflection on grief. That could be the subtitle for the entire book of Job. It might be the subtitle of your life. And you wonder, what can I do in such a time? When it feels like everything is falling and failing, where can I turn? And the answer is the Bible. And so I ask you to turn with me to the book of Job now. This morning we'll be in Job chapter 2. Last week we were in Job 1 as we began this study through the Old Testament book of Job, a real person in a real time going through real experiences. This week we'll be in Job 2. Next week we'll be in Job 3. And then from there the pace will pick up as the kind of structure of the book changes into these dialogues between Job and friends. And so we won't go chapter by chapter unless you were thinking we would spend 42 weeks in Job. But we do want to spend some time reflecting on the nature of suffering, the hardship of it, and, and what happens to our hearts in the midst of it. So Job chapter 2, if you're using one of the Bibles under your chairs, I believe it's on page 417. There's different Bibles under there, so check that. If you really want to know how to find it easily, just go to the middle of your Bible. You'll usually find Psalms right in the middle and flip back one book, and Job is right before Psalms. If you are visiting with us this morning, and you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, feel free to take that Bible under the chair home with you. We love for you to have your own copy of God's Word to read, and to pray through, and to ask questions about, and mark through. And if you have any questions about anything in the sermon, or about anything in the Bible, ask the person next to you after service. They should be able to help you out. Or you can find me at the door. We would love to talk with you. So we don't want this to just be a time of top-down instruction. We want you to engage with God's word, to ask questions, and to wrestle through tough questions. That's what we're going to do with the entire series of Job. Job chapter 2. We read, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still up holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. 
But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to him to show sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Here's what I think is the main point, the main idea of Job chapter 2. And so the main point of our sermon this morning. God sends deep trials and troubles, not to destroy our faith, but to deepen it and to declare his glory even as things go from bad to worse. God sends deep trials and troubles, not to destroy our faith, but to deepen it. And to declare his glory, even as things go from bad to worse. As we study Job chapter 2, we'll focus in on three scenes we see in this passage. Scene 1, point 1, the test of faith. We see that in verses 1 through 7. Point number 2, passing the test. We see that in verses 8 through 10. Seen in point number three, suffering in silence. We see that in verses 11 through 13. Three points and three scenes. The test of faith, passing the test, and suffering in silence. Number one, the test of faith. And now generally, nobody likes tests. I mean, if you remind your, rewind your mind back to the time when you were a student. Perhaps the thing you dreaded more than daily homework was the constant reminder of the big test coming up later in the week. I mean, tests by their very nature conjure up immediate connotations as being hard and taxing and requiring a lot of effort to pass. That's true of one test. When tests are multiplied, it, it sends us into near-all-out near anxiety mode, feeling overburdened and as if our teachers are being overbearing. I mean, some of you high schoolers just finished last week going through finals weeks, or maybe middle schoolers do middle school finals weeks, where, where you had final tests not just in one class, but in all your classes each seemingly competing with the other to see which could be the most difficult and cause the most pain and suck the most pleasure out of your life. Not another test. That's something of the sympathetic mindset we have when we opened up Job chapter 2. The opening words cast ominous clouds over an already dark life. We read in verse 1, Again, there was a day. And our initial response is, oh, no, not another test. You see, because we know what that phrase has meant so far in our short time in this book. I mean, if you look back in chapter one, verse six, 
We read there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came as well. And it ended up that Satan was given permission to touch all that Job had and to take it away. And then if you let your eyes drift to, to verse 13 of chapter 1, we read there was a day. And oh, what a day it was where Job lost everything. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, all taken away, and all 10 of Job's children were killed. And then chapter 2, verse 1 says, again there was a day? <laughs> not again, uh, not another day of doom and destruction. How much more can this man take? Well, more than he already has taken, obviously. We read again there was a day in verse 1 where the sons of God came to present themselves once more before the Lord and once more, Satan is present. We touched on this last week, but it shows, again, the prevalence of spiritual activity in the universe. This council in heaven presided over by God that we saw in chapter one wasn't just a one off event. There is a spiritual realm brimming with spiritual life and spiritual beings conducting business at the Lord's bidding constantly. Here, once more, we get a listen in on a conversation in the spiritual realm in heaven between God and the Satan, the adversary, the devil. It's a conversation not between equals, but between one who is superior and the other who is his subordinate, the devil. And it's very similar to the conversation recorded in chapter one, verses six through 12, with, with just a few variations. God asked Satan here in verse 2 for a report on his activity. Satan responds that he's been wandering all over the earth, seeking whom he might menace, seeking whose faith he might devour. And we must say his efforts have been quite successful. I and mean, throughout history, the devil's roaming has caused many people ruin. They've bit at his temptations. They believed his lies. They buckled under his persuasive power and they bucked against God's authority. When Satan says, I've gone to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it, it's as if as he's done it, he's been knocking over people's faith like a bowling ball to flimsy pins. It's been quite a successful conquest. But, but God points to one person who's proved resilient through all Satan's roaming and reckoning. Job. Verse 3, the Lord says again to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. This is the third time in the book that Job's character and godliness have been commended. In the opening verses of chapter one, the narrator of this book tells us that Job was a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then a few verses later in chapter one, in the first conversation with Satan regarding Job, the Lord himself says that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. But both of those descriptions of Job were before his life was ruined, before he lost fortune and family. I mean, we, we've seen or heard of people who were one way for the better part of their lives, but then some traumatic event happened and they totally changed. How many storylines have we heard of young boys, once upstanding and respectable, turned hardened and hateful when their fathers walked out of their lives? 
How many stories of spouses once delightful in their demeanor and trusting firmly in God, now openly dismissing him and disgusted by the thought of him after their spouse cheated or their child died. Trauma often transforms people. Not just their emotions, trauma often transforms their values and their allegiances. But it has not transformed Job's values and allegiances. Amazingly, the same things can be said about Job post-apocalypse. After Job's world has been rocked and ruined. We don't know how much time has elapsed between the events of chapter one and the scene here in chapter two. Whether it's been days or weeks or months. It's no matter the the, the type of things this man endured stay with you for a lifetime. But however long it's been since Job lost everything, he has not lost his trust in God and his desire to live a life pleasing to him. The Lord says Job is still blameless. He's still upright. He still fears God and he still turns away from evil. Verse four, he still holds fast his integrity, even though Satan stirred the pot and incited God to destroy him without any valid reason at all. Satan had promised that once God removed his hedge of protection around Job and took away all his possessions, that Job would curse God to his face, that his faith would be a former thing. But look at God boasting. He still loves me. He still holds his integrity. He still lives to honor me, even after a severe test of his faith. I think it's a reminder, a needed reminder that we all live before the face of God. He sees us. He sees all our actions. He sees all our attitudes, and he is pleased by our obedience Obedience and submission to him and trust in him through all circumstances. I wonder how that reality transforms the way you live every day. The reality that the sovereign Lord knows and notices everything about you. If you're actively seeking to live for him, I hope that it encourages you to keep on going. Even when it's hard. Even when everybody else around you is calling you a square or a fool or a goody two shoes or a holy roller or weird. Understand from this passage that the Lord takes notice of your godliness and he lavishes praise on those who faithfully serve him. Keep going. So that one day you will directly hear his praise to you when he welcomes you to heaven with a well done, my good and faithful servants. If you're not living for the Lord, but rebelling against him and living for the world, I pray this passage would cause you to stop. You know, you might get all kinds of praises from posts on Facebook or Twitter. You you might get all kind of praises from people. You you might be seen in the world's eyes as cool or chill or to have swag. But the most important question is, what does the Lord say about you? He sees everything about us and he has something to say about us. What is God's tagline over your life? Job has successfully journeyed through a massive test of faith and come out of it on the other side with a faith more pure, more firm. Just as a piece of gold goes through fire to be tested and is said to still hold its properties, to still hold its value, so Job still holds fast his integrity, still holds fast his faith even after Satan's vicious, fiery attacks that God allowed. The Lord is saying, see, Satan, I I am worthy of being worshiped at all times. Job is still trusting in me. 
And yet, Satan is undeterred. He answers the Lord in verse 4, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. Stretch your hand out against him and now touch his body and he will curse you to your face. The devil doubles down. He does not for one split second stop and consider I was actually wrong. Job did not curse God when all his possessions were taken away. He didn't stop and consider at all. Maybe there is something glorious in God that is worthy of worship and adoration. Maybe there are people who exist who really worship God simply for who he is. No, he instead moves on to alternate explanations and to more sinister plans. You know, that's the nature of sin. Sin is stubborn. It digs its heels in even when it's shown to be wrong. It won't change no matter what happens or what it's shown. Friends, that is the definition of foolishness and not wisdom. When God shows you that you are in the wrong, when God's word shines a light on what you are doing as wrong, when God's spirit convicts your heart and convinces you that what you're thinking and what you're contemplating doing is wrong, what you should not do is continue to do wrong. Don't continue in sin. Repent of your sin so that you might find mercy and forgiveness at the hand of God. For Satan, there is no repentance and no desire for repentance. His only desire is for ruin. Satan is out to ruin Job. He is out to ruin us. Again, listen to what God says his purpose was in verse 3. To destroy Job without reason. Having failed his first attempt, he lodges another attack. The man keeps on going. And this time he challenges Job, uh, challenges God that Job only still worships him. Not because God is truly good, but because God didn't go far enough in afflicting Job. See how sick and sadistic the devil is. A man losing all of his children and all of his livelihood is not enough for him. More devastation is desired in order for Job to really show that his heart isn't really for God. Satan says all that a man has, he'll give up for his own life. Touch Job's actual body, his physical well-being, and he will curse you. In essence, Satan says that at the end of the day, people look out for themselves. Self-preservation is people's top priority. Seems to be true. I mean, it's a concept even the Bible seems to point to in places. I mean, in Ephesians chapter 5, when when Paul talks about husbands loving their wives, he tells them to, to love your wives as you love your own bodies. For no one ever hated his own flesh. But he makes sure he nourishes his own flesh and cherishes it. Yes, Satan says, Job may have deeply loved his children. Job may have deeply loved the lifestyle that all his livestock afforded him. But you know what Job loves deeper than any of those things? Job loves his own life. He loves his own physical well-being. You touch that, and you're going to see that his supposedly deep affections for you are a mere myth. He will damn you. And notice... The Lord doesn't say, look, enough is enough. You were already proven wrong once. How many times do I have to prove you wrong again? Job suffered enough. Leave him alone. I mean, that's what we expect God to say. 
That's what we often wrongly counsel people with in hard times. We tell them God won't put more on you than you can bear. Really? <laughs> How do you explain what Joseph read for us earlier in 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul says that we were so utterly burdened that we despaired of life itself? How do you explain the day that Job previously had? Saints, don't deliver empty platitudes and empty promises that might be well-meaning, but don't actually find their footing in Scripture. Hang in there. Things won't get better. Often, things go from bad to worse. And God is behind it all. And now, God is not evil in any way. The, the Bible is is clear on that in, in passages like James chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 1. God wants the best for his children. The, but the best for his children is himself. And to grow and deepen our dependence upon and delight in him, the Lord often includes as a good father in our spiritual diet some bitter herbs. Some bitter and hard promises. Yes, he often gives us, perhaps more than not, he often gives us feasts where we have delicious meat and, and wonderful lamb, all the kind of delicacies, but he often sometimes interrupts those feasts and gives us some bitter herbs to eat and swallow. Some suffering that comes and doesn't go away quickly, that deepens and touches what it seems all the way down to your soul. And so surprisingly for, for some of us here, the, the Lord says to Satan's challenge in verse 6, Behold, Job is in your hand. Again. The only restriction is that Satan must spare Job's life. And look at verse 7. That's all that Satan spares. A given permission by God to afflict Job's body, Satan rapidly goes out and inflicts intense punishment over Job's entire body from head to toe. From the text tells us the sole of his feet all the way up to the top of his head. He inflicts Job's body, his entire body, with loathsome sores or incredibly painful boils all over. Job later says in chapter 7 that these boils would open up and get filled with dirt and worms and never properly heal, but then harden only to open up again. According to, to, to verse 8, they were probably itchy as well, so that scraping them with this broken piece of pottery actually felt good. But of course, when you scrape that thing, it would only cause that boil to open again, to get infected again and reinfected over and over again and become even more painful. And these things covered Job's entire body. There was no position he could turn or, or twist to, to find some reprieve. And they were from the sole of his feet down all the way to the top of his head. Every step hurt. Every piece of clothing that rubbed up against those loathsome sores hurts. It was terrible pain all over all the time. I think it shows us Satan has no mercy. The only reason he doesn't take Job's life is because he can't. But he'll do absolutely everything else in his power to demolish Job. Friends, Satan is not your friend. Satan does not come after you, come for you, to recruit you to join his super squad to go up against God. As the old folks used to say, you, you end up sinning so much that right, God can't have you, but the devil don't want you. People used to say, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm doing my own thing. I don't care if I go to hell. There's going to be a party in hell with Satan. That is not true. 
Satan is not inviting you to a party. He does not think friendly terms of you. He absolutely hates you. He wants to devour you. Given the opportunity, look at how reckless this man will go. He hates Job and wants to devour Job. And so Job is left a broken man. His fortune, gone. His children, gone. And now his health, gone. This great man who had so much at the beginning of this book, just two chapters into it, has just a broken piece of pottery in his hands. Right, right, chapter one introduces Job's hands were filled with everything. Chapter two, all he's got is a broken piece of pottery. And look where he's sitting. Not in the comfortable confines of his estate. <laughs> what estate is left? Job here is at the trash heap. The city dump where garbage would be burned. That's what it means when he's sitting in the ashes. Perhaps because that's what he feels like he's deteriorating into. I mean, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's been another time of intense trial for Job. This, this time it's touching his very body. It's Satan afflicting and God allowing him to in this severe test of faith. How will Job respond now? That brings us to our second point. The second scene we see, passing the test. Passing the test. We, we come to verse 9 with Job suffering horribly, reduced to a former shell of himself. But as with the first test of faith in chapter 1, after Job there heard that he lost all of his possessions, there was a glimmer of hope. In chapter 1, it, it was that even after all the sheep and oxen and donkeys and camels were killed, Job held out hope that at least his children were still alive before hearing the devastating news that they too were dead. Well, here, even as Job's physical health has been lost and his body racked with sores, Job could still hold out hope. At least I've still got my wife, my ride or die, my A1 from day one. They're with me for better or for worse in sickness and in health. <laughs> well, here's Job at his worst in sickness, near death. And we read in verse nine, here's his wife wife with him showing up on the scene with her husband in great agony she opens up her mouth and says dear husband how might I help you in this terrible situation is there anything I can do to help provide for you some relief let's go to the Lord in prayer together asking for his healing and for his strength no, that's not what she says. She says in verse 9, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job is at his lowest point. In need of any kind of help and hope possible. But here's his wife figuratively pouring salt in those open sores with her words. And now it's easy for us to blast Job's wife here. But before doing so, just consider her experience, her perspective. She, too, has lost all 10 of her children. The children she carried in her womb for nine months. The children that she painfully delivered after hours of grueling labor. The children that she joyfully and lovingly raised carefully observing and learning their 10 distinct personalities. You know, no two children are alike. The children that she tenderly nurtured and cared for throughout all their years, balancing dad's firmness with her softness, being a mother to them. How deep and sharp the arrow in her heart 
when Job walked through the threshold of their bedroom to deliver the news that had just been delivered to him. All the children are dead. She too had lost with Job all their wealth, all their livelihood, all that was in their checking and their savings and their retirement accounts, all their prospects for the present and for the future. And now as a final blow, she was losing her husband, seemingly disintegrating before her very eyes. Was it out of pity that she spoke? Wanting Job's misery to end, even if by the sin of cursing God? Perhaps. But it was definitely out of pain that she spoke. Rashly, harshly, sinfully. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Hear in her words Satan's wishes. Satan's probing. Remember, throughout these two chapters, what he's been promising would happen. That when God stripped Job of stuff and ultimately his health, that Job would curse God to his face. And remember God's boast earlier in this chapter, up in verse 3, that Job still holds fast his integrity. Even after Satan had it incited him to destroy him by taking all he had. Well, now as a kind of twist of the knife in Job's spirit to totally break him down, Satan uses Job's wife as a tool. You still trusting in God? For what? What good has that gotten you? Curse God and be done with all this. Satan is slimy. He has no limits. He'll use those closest to accomplish his purposes. Now, given what he's endured, one might understand if Job responded to his wife, you know what? You're right. The hell with God. I'm done with him. I done led our family to faithfully trust and serve the Lord with all that we have, with all our finances, with all our time, with all our possessions. I've given everything to the Lord. I've sought to love him and care for him. I've sought to love and care for others made in his image. And this is the thanks I get. This is how God treats me. Middle finger to you, God. But Job doesn't do that. Job sides with God over his wife's wishes. Job is something here of the anti-Adam. Remember, Adam's wife, Eve, tempted him to side with her and rebel against God. And Adam folded, listening to his wife's words instead of to God's command. Eating the fruit that led to the fall of all humanity and bringing into the world sin and death that has spread like a curse to all of Adam's seed, including you and me. Job, however, rejects his wife and not the Lord. Rejects the devil's temptations through his wife and not the Lord. Friends, anybody tempting you to turn away from God, no matter how close they are to you, must be turned down in favor of the Lord. Job responds to her in verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Notice Job doesn't call his wife foolish, but says she talks as one who is foolish. She speaks as one, as if she was one of the foolish women. You see, saints, I think it reminds us that there are times, even as believers, where we can act like unbelievers, where we can say and do things that are totally opposed to God's plan and purposes. To put it bluntly, Christians sin. And so we need to be on guard. Job catches his wife's words. He analyzes them and acknowledges them as foolish talk. 
A foolish talk is any idea of turning away from or denying or blaming or cursing God. You know, this is one of the benefits and blessings of marrying in the Lord. Single people, this is why no matter how strong your desire to be married, no matter how fine he or she is or how many other boxes they check, you must not punt on the biblical mandate to marry another Christian. Because oftentimes, more than you think will be the case, you need a godly spouse to keep you from straying away from God. That's part of why the Lord has put them in your life, to keep you in the faith. That's why if you are a godly spouse, already married to an unbelieving spouse, you shouldn't just leave him or her because they don't know the Lord or trust God. You are part of God's means to keep them from embracing foolishness altogether. You are something of God's restraining force in their lives. So I wonder, do you have a concept? Do you have a concept of foolishness in your marriage that does not equate to finishedness? Do you have a concept in your marriage of foolishness that doesn't mean your marriage is finished? Many people in our society think the only lever they have when they encounter difficulty is divorce. When their spouse wrongs them, that's the only lever they reach for. Now, let me be very clear. There are some instances where divorce is biblical and may be the wisest option. Many marriages and many people have been harmed by pastors insisting on things that the Bible does not insist upon. Their spouses stay together no matter what sin is committed. But it's also the case that many more marriages are harmed by a self-propelled instinct to be done with the other spouse, not just that that's the wisest option, but is the only option. When any sin or any disappointments or any failure or simply any foolishness occurs. That's not how Job thinks about his marriage. Notice he doesn't cancel his wife. He doesn't cut off his wife. He gently corrects his wife. It would be easy here, given all of his sorrows and pain, for Job to frame his wife as his greatest enemy and to go off on her. For him to feel attacked and abandoned by her and so unload on his wife for not really caring about him. You see, suffering can make us incredibly selfish, Amen. only concerned with how we are served, on how our suffering is being relieved or not responded to well. It can make us unconcerned at all with serving others in their suffering, unconcerned at all with helping others in their sin. But not Job. He sees his wife not as his enemy, rather he sees himself as his wife's advocates. And even with all his suffering, he sees an opportunity to come alongside of her and redirect her focus and faith on the Lord. It's incredible material here for marriages. I wonder about your marriage. Have you given up on your marriage? Have the hardships you face together? Has the harshness of some of your spouse's words convinced you that you must see them only through the lens of enemy and not through the lens, the biblical lens of someone God has put me with to help point them to the Lord even when they sin? 
You see, if we say we love our spouses, if we say we love people, then we need to understand what love does. Love moves towards people in their sin and leads them to God. That's how the Lord has loved us. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God pursued us when we were unlovable, when we said and did horrible things to him and he sent his son to suffer and die and rise again for all those who would turn from their sin and trust in him. And he did it all to bring us back to him, to reconcile us to himself. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because of God's pursuitful love of sinners. And if God has so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We ought also demonstrate a pursuitful love of other sinners, especially those sinners whom we share our last names and our homes and our lives with, our spouses. Job doesn't give up on his wife. He goes after her and he shows his heart for her. But more importantly, Job shows his heart for God. He asked rhetorically in verse 10, shall we, my love, <laughs> receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? For a better translation is adversity or trouble. We've been told in this book of all the fortune and all the children that Job had. We've been told in this book of all the misfortune that Job had. But notice how Job speaks as we and not I. We have received good and we have received evil or trouble. In marriage, the two become one and share both in life's ups and life's downs. Job empathizes with his wife. He knows she's gone through these experiences with him. And he reminds her of God's essential goodness. You know, because troubles can so dominate our thoughts that that's all we sometimes see. And we can all be guilty of recency bias. The most recent tragedy or trials wipe away any memory of former months or years of happiness and harvest. No, Job looks over their entire lives at all that God has given them over the years and acknowledges that it all came from the hand of a good God. The 10 kids, the years and memories that we had with them, the successful business, the money, the good health, God has been good to us, my love. He's been better than we deserve. We have received a lot of good from God. Shall we not then, with the good meats, eat a little bit of the bitter vegetables? Shall we not also receive some hard from him as well? We'll continue to see this play out through the book. But, but notice Job does not have some false dichotomy that good things come from God, but bad things come from some other place. No, Job believes in a sovereign God who is good all the time and in control of all things, including the tragedies in their lives. Job doesn't know why they've come. Again, he hasn't had access to the heavenly conversations that we've had. But even as they've come and as these trials have deepened, Job trusts in God. His trust in God has deepened. And he seeks to deepen his wife's faith in the Lord as well. No, we're not going to curse God and die. We're going to trust God and live even under his hard providence. And the end of verse 10 tells us in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
In other words, the devil loses again. He always does when he goes against God. The devil promised that if you tore Job's body up, he'd certainly curse God. Wrong, Satan. No sin is found in Job's response. His faith in God has been tested to the seeming limits. And he again has passed the test. Job's God is worth relying on. Even when everything and everyone else fails Job, including his own body. God is that good, that glorious, that Job still holds fast to him and worships him. Which is why the next scene is so baffling to us as we see Job suffering in silence. Lastly, and more shortly, third and final scene, suffering in silence. Having passed these two extreme tests of faith, with his possessions and his body being touched, we expect the end of chapter two to be the end of the book, and one with a happy ending. We expect to read, and so God healed Job and restored all he had because Job remained faithful to God. But instead, we see Job still suffering. Verse 11 tells us that Job's three friends heard of all the evil, all the trouble that had come upon him, and each made an appointment to come from their own land. Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, to show sympathy and to comfort him. These friends each come from different countries. It would take time for the news of Job's trouble to reach them. There was no text message or email. And once they all heard the news, it would take time for them all to coordinate schedules and to coordinate travel to be able to come together to visit Job. Perhaps months have passed. And in that time, Job is still suffering. He's shown himself faithful. And yet his body is still failing and his pain is still deeply felt. That these friends decide to come and comfort Job, I think shows us something of the power of physical presence. They heard the news of Job's demise by way of courier, but they didn't send words of hope or encouragement or sympathy by courier. They knew that that wouldn't be enough. With the type of pain and hurt that Job was experiencing, they knew they needed to be there with him together to comfort him. I think there's a a deep lesson for us today in the day of digital age. You cannot substitute presence with your face on a screen. Oftentimes you need to be with folks on Sunday mornings, on Sunday evenings, on Wednesday nights, and throughout the week. It's why we steadily preach here that one of the main ministries that you can have at Temple Hills Baptist Church is simply but strikingly a ministry of presence. Coming around and being around your brothers and sisters as they invariably suffer through different stages of life. You might feel, well, when I hear about the suffering, then I'll come near. Well, you hear about the suffering by coming near. People tend to share more deeply people they trust more closely. Trust is built more closely as you attend to gatherings more regularly. I'm grateful for the ways we, we've practiced that here. As you've already done, do more. Continue to prioritize being a faithful presence in the lives of other brothers and sisters. In any case, when, when Job's friends finally do come to Job, What they see is actually worse than they've actually heard. Verse 12 tells us that when they saw Job, they didn't even recognize their friend. His body is so disfigured, so eaten up by all the sores, so worn down by all the grief they couldn't make out. That can't be, that can't be Job. He was a shadow of his former self. 
The mere sight of Job told a whole story and was so devastating that the friends grieved greatly. They wept and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They could do nothing but have these outward signs of grief. This was a devastating scene. And Job doesn't say a word to them. And so shocked are they by his presence, they can't, they can't think of a word to say to him. And so verse 13 tells us they sat with him in silence for seven days and seven nights, which is the usual mourning period for the dead, which Job was as good as to them. For they saw his suffering was very great. Still, after all his faithfulness, Job still suffering greatly. His wife's words didn't comfort him, nor his friend's presence. Job is still in great pain, suffering in silence with no words from his friends and no words from God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And from this account, you're thinking it's highly unlikely that I'll ever be one. I mean, if this is how God treats his servants, if this is how God treats people that he loves. But friends, understand that Job's ordeal, while very real, points to an even greater person whom God loved and yet put through intense suffering. He struck his own son, Jesus Christ, with intense suffering and agony, giving his body over to be beaten brutally, and finally killed. Just as sickness made Job's body unrecognizable, persecution and beatings made Jesus's body and face unrecognizable. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 in predicting the realities of the suffering servant said that his appearance was so marred that it was beyond human resemblance and his form was beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says that he was acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. Jesus suffered greater than any other person. Not for anything that he'd done wrong, but God put him up to suffer for our sakes and for our sins. He suffered physically more than Job. And like Job, he suffered in silence. With no words from friends to comfort him. Shoot, he didn't even have his friends presence. They all left him at his moment of greatest need. And no words from God either. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out for another way than the cross. But God was silent. And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God was silent. Just as Job felt all alone in his suffering, so did Jesus. He was whom Job was pointing to. And Jesus suffered not as part of some sick game that God was playing, not for God to destroy the one he loved, but for God to save others whom he loved, to save sinners like you and me. You see, God's purposes for suffering are redemptive. He saves us through suffering. And he sanctifies us through suffering as we share in part of the sufferings of Christ, conforming us more and more into his image. And so you can trust in God and not turn away from God because his plans for suffering are always good because he is always good. And you can know with certainty that every trial and every trouble he sends is never to destroy your faith. 
but to deepen your faith and to declare his glory. Even when things go from bad to worse. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. That reorients our hearts. That challenges our assumptions. That puts steel in our spines to keep trusting you even when life is incredibly hard. Even when the people closest to us tempt us to turn away from you. Oh Lord, we pray that you would renew our hearts. Strengthen them to cling to Christ. Cling to you through faith in Christ. Through the fiercest challenges. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.